Well, good morning. Good to worship with you today. My name is Fred. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be uh, bringing the message this morning. Thank you for coming and checking out Redemption Church today. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles, if you would. Join me in Revelation chapter 1. As you're uh, finding Revelation chapter 1, it's the last book of the Bible. It's one of the easiest to find, Genesis and Revelation being the two easiest. So turn to the very end of the book and go to chapter 1. While you're finding that, let me remind you, we have baptisms coming up in just a few weeks. If you uh, are interested in discussing baptism and whether or not that would be an appropriate next step for you, maybe you've recently begun following Christ or you've just never been baptized. A lot of times Christians uh, may follow Jesus for a long time before getting baptized. We would love to talk to you about the potential of being baptized at our next baptism service. So uh, the connect card on the seat in front of you is the easiest way to let us know. You can just check the box uh, that you're interested in, in talking with a, a pastor about baptism and we will get in touch with you. Also, small groups got off to a strong start last week, but it's not too late. If you wanna get into one of our small groups, uh, you can go to our website, you can follow, I think there's a QR code perhaps on the handout um, and just click on small groups and that'll let you know the different options that you have for joining a small group. All right, hopefully you found Revelation. We're gonna read chapter one, verses nine through 20 and after we read, I will pray. I, John, your brother and partner in affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, his eyes and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as, as it is fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you pray with me as we consider God's word together? Fathers, we, as we discussed last week, we wanna come before your word humbly. As we as we venture into deep waters here, as we look at the book of Revelation together, may we do so with the appropriate level of humility and excitement for what you are going to reveal. May we have hearts and minds that have been refreshed by the gospel to see our King in the revelation of his glory. Father, I pray that you would expose 
in our own hearts our unbelief, expose the sinful and worldly desires that keep us from enjoying you more. And God, would you use, use this word to pierce our hearts so that we might, might be brought to life in you and so that we might see the glory of our risen Savior and so that we might live lives of anticipation of what it will be like to be with you forever. Making the days and the hours count for eternity, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, last week I kind of laid out the different approaches to Revelation. If you weren't here last week and didn't have an opportunity to listen online, I think it'd be very helpful to go back and listen to that. The, the study of Revelation really begins with an understanding of the different ways of approaching this book. And so I encourage you to take a few minutes this week and go back to that if you, if you, if you weren't with us. But I'm going to move forward, assuming you have that information, and if you don't, I think this week especially will be very easy to follow with or without that info, but for the sake of your own study, uh, please make sure that you're familiar with that information, but today we, we just kind of want to introduce the book. We're going we're gonna, to uh, meet our author, we're going to meet the subject of his book, we're going to uh, hear the context or the setting from which this revelation came. And so if you have the handout in front of you, let's go ahead, we'll fill in some blanks together. The first point on the handout is this. John introduces some of the themes of his letter and, and this is what they are. The Christian life is one of affliction, kingdom, and endurance. The Christian life is one of affliction, kingdom, and endurance. Before we get into those themes, let me introduce you to our author. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It, our author introduces himself as John, our brother and partner. Now, the, the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars seem to, to easily conclude that this is the apostle John, the one who walked with Jesus, who was part of Jesus's inner circle, one of Jesus's three closest disciples. And part of the argument for that is the fact that he does not see the need to introduce himself Beyond saying it's me, John. If you call, if you call home, well, if you call home, like anybody has a landline. If you have, if you can remember a time when there were landlines, and you called home, or a member of your family called home, and let's say I call home and one of my kids answered, and I say, "Hey, it's me, Dad." Or if my wife answers, I'm like, "Hey, it's me, Fred." And I have to go beyond that in order to help them understand who I am, then there's a bad connection, right? John simply introduces himself as John. He has no need to introduce himself further. In fact, he, he demonstrates the appropriate restraint of humility that this letter is worthy of when he says, it's me, your brother and partner in the affliction. And if that, if that reasoning, and there's many other reasons to believe this is 
the Apostle John, and if that reasoning is correct, then there's things that are important to know. This man has walked with Jesus. John was likely the last surviving apostle of the first century. Uh, Christian tradition and, and history seems to affirm that he lived the longest. He is, his setting is the island of Patmos. Now Patmos is an island where the Roman Empire would send criminals who didn't deserve to die, but rather than at the cost of the state in, imprisoning them and keeping the, and footing the bill for their survival, they would exile them to this island in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. And so John is on this island, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This could mean a couple of different things. It could be that John intentionally and willfully went to the island as a missionary. That is one suggestion that the strongest evidence seems to suggest that he was actually there because he was being punished because of his preaching of the word of God. And so the Roman Empire considered, as they did often with Christians during that time, uh, considered their Christian testimony to be criminal, uh, but deeming him not worthy of death, but rather of exile onto Patmos, they sent him away to live with other criminals. That seems to be the strongest possibility. And of course, there's other historical precedent for things like that. The British Empire did that with Australia. That's how the colony of Australia was built up because uh, the British Empire would send their criminals to Australia to work in labor camps and to build up this colony that they were developing. Similar thing is happening here with John. We don't know a lot of the details of what life was like on Patmos, but you're exiled on an island with a bunch of criminals. So it's probably not a pleasant existence. He says, I'm here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so, with that as his backdrop, John introduces several of the themes that we're gonna see again and again in the book of Revelation, affliction being one of them. John is being afflicted. He is being punished because of his obedience to the gospel. He has been sent into exile because of his affiliation with the ministry of the gospel in the first century. And this is, sets the stage really well for what we're going to see in the book of Revelation as God's people experience affliction. There is a distortion of the Christian message that teaches that those who have the greatest faith and are most obedient to the commands of Jesus will not experience affliction in this life. Sometimes we call this the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, that if you're just faithful enough, that if you just believe God enough, and if you just obey his commands well enough, he will make sure nothing bad happens to you. This Distortion of the gospel is completely foreign to the New Testament. We see here, John, there was perhaps no one else alive at the time who had more faith and who had greater obedience to the gospel than the Apostle John. 
and here he is facing severe affliction. And this will be what we see throughout the book of Revelation, God's people destined to suffer for the sake of the gospel. God's people destined to, be, to face persecution, to suffer in this world because of their affiliation with and their obedience to the gospel message. And so John writes to the first century church, would be his first and foremost, his primary audience, right? He writes to the first century church who are experiencing that same affliction, And John does not contend with them. You just need to have more faith. You just need to be more obedient to the gospel or or this one's unfortunately very popular. You just need to give more money and God will deliver you from this persecution. He says, no, I'm, I'm your brother and indeed your partner in affliction. This affliction though, is not without purpose. It is through this affliction that God is building and establishing his kingdom. It is through the suffering, not just of his people, but through the suffering even of the son of God himself that the kingdom of God is advancing. And so the themes that John introduces are in the appropriate order. Affliction, which results in kingdom, which therefore demands endurance. If our affliction is accomplishing something worthwhile, then we should endure. If our suffering is producing something of eternal value and worth, then we ought to be encouraged to endure for Christ. That's exactly what John does. He endures. He endures the hardship as did so many other disciples in the first century and as have countless others in the 2,000 years since then endured faithfully, considering that even our own lives are not worth as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes, I'm your brother, I'm your partner in affliction and kingdom and endurance, the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. All of this is not random happenstance. It's, it, it, it is part of our obedience to the gospel. It is part of our expression of of obedience to what Jesus has done for us and what he desires to do through us. It's part of the plan. Jesus said as much. He warned his disciples before he himself went and suffered. He warned his disciples that they too would have to suffer for his name's sake. And so when you and I feel like as though life is unfair. When we ask questions like, why do good things happen to bad people? You know, the question we ought to be asking is, why do, did I say that right? Did I mess that up? Did I already say it wrong? I I ruined my punchline. Why do, when we ask ourselves questions, dang it, this was good. 
reverse, okay? When we ask ourselves, why do good things happen? Why do bad things? I quit. (laughs) Why do bad things happen to good people? The question we ought to ask is why do good things happen to bad people? Why do any of us receive mercy? None of us have earned what we receive in Jesus Christ. None of us deserve the kindness that he has shown us in taking away the guilt and the penalty of our sin and in exchange giving us his own righteousness and the promise of eternal life. Why does anybody get that? This this is the mentality that the Christian church for centuries has thrived under and yet the church today wants the church today wants to somehow escape the difficulties of life wants to escape the promised persecution and affliction that comes from following Christ we want we want a gospel that promises only good things in this life and that gospel does not exist is a false, made-up gospel with no power to, to empower you to live a faithful life in Jesus' name. Revelation is gonna help us greatly understand the big picture, the purpose behind our suffering, the purpose behind our affliction for the sake of Jesus. So John has introduced himself. He's introduced some of his themes. We know a little bit about his setting. He's, he's exiled on this island, surrounded by criminals. And yet in this place of darkness and in this, 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 this place of imprisonment, the Lord meets him there. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So here he is in this this destitute place surrounded by some of the worst people of society and perhaps some other Christians, who knows? And, 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 and yet, this is the setting that God chooses to give him this revelation of Jesus Christ. When John, when John says, I was in the spirit, he's saying this was not, this was no normal human experience. It's It's not, I was so deep in thought that I envisioned these brilliant ideas. It was, no, I was was somehow raptured up into this spiritual realm. The veil that hides from us these spiritual realities was for a period of time in John's life pulled back so that he could see the things that are normally hidden from you and I. And what he sees, he sees, the next thing you'll see on your handout is he sees the main theme of his book, which is Jesus. He sees Jesus. The the highlight 
of his revelation, the highlight of this experience is not, the, the, the central focus of all that is revealed to him is not the Antichrist, it's, it's not great human tragedy, it's not wars on the earth. At the center of everything that he sees is the sinless son of God who died to take away the sins of the world. He sees Jesus. And it's awesome. It's, as we go through Revelation, do not, do not fall into the trap of getting so lost in the weeds trying to figure out things that are still really veiled things that are still mysterious, things that, that still aren't clearly known, that you miss what is clearly revealed, the glory of Jesus himself. You do not want, as we like to say, you don't want to miss the forest for the trees. If you read through Revelation and you don't come to the end with a greater awareness of how awesome Jesus is, you have not read Revelation well. If you read through Revelation and you are overcome by fear or you are confused to the point of, of despair over what may, may take place on this earth and you don't see that Jesus is just awesome and that he wins and that everything is in his control, you have not read Revelation well. Of all the things that John sees, this one's the most important. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. John is grasping at words that can describe the glory of what he is witnessing. He is, he is doing his best with, with the vocabulary that he has to describe what is ultimately indescribable. He sees one like the Son of Man. This, is, this, this passage is rich with Old Testament language for God himself. In Daniel, Daniel describes one he saw that was like a son of man and he describes him in very similar language and the radiance of his glory that is pouring forth and even from his head down to his feet. He emanates glory and, and, and John is saying, I saw the, the one who is like the son of man. He has the same divine essence as the father, this Jesus whom we proclaim to you. His glory shines. What's the, you're, you're, you're exiled on an island in the Middle East. 
there's nothing more overpowering than the sun at midday. John says his face was shining like the sun at full strength. A sword came from his mouth, sharp on both edges. It doesn't matter which way it swings, it's going to slice and it's going to dice and it's going to do its job. His voice, like the sound of cascading or, or thundering waters, picture Picture water, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, and if you get close to the falls itself, all you hear is the thunder of the water crashing down. This is John's way of describing the power, the power that his voice carried. This is before the time of a mechanical or electrical amplification. This is before the time when anybody had heard the explosion of dynamite. What are, what, John just reaching for the loudest thing I can think of. This one who's like the son of man had glory that John struggled to describe. Now remember, John knew Jesus. He knew him really well. He walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He ministered alongside of Jesus. He even saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' physical body was transformed to display his eternal glory. And yet something has changed. He even saw the resurrected Jesus. And there's something about this Jesus that is still familiar to John, yet there's something that has changed changed in a glorious way. And that something is that this Jesus has ascended to his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God and the glory that was with him before the foundation of the world now shines through his physical being. And John is in awe. How would you respond if you saw this Jesus? What words would come from your mouth or would there be words to come from your mouth? What John responds and Revelation tells us of John's response, you'll see the next, the final main point on your handout before uh, the question that I'll, I'll close with in a few minutes the final point is this. John responds to Jesus and receives the commission to share what he sees. This is, you see, we're just setting up the book here. This is the setting of how this book came to be and why we have written down this revelation. John responds. He responds in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John, in the presence of the glory of the Son of God, John, in, in, the, in, in the presence of the one whose physical attributes can barely be described with human language, falls before him as though he is dead. No words are coming from his mouth. He dare not make the next move, all he can do is hope for mercy. And this is the normal response to seeing a vision of God's glory. 
And in the, the times that have been recorded for us in the Bible where, where man encountered the glory of God, the same thing always happens. They fall down before the Lord and wait for him to move. <laughs> wait for him to take the next step. Daniel chapter seven, when he receives a similar vision of God's glory, does the same thing. He falls before the Lord. Isaiah, before being commissioned for his prophetic ministry in Isaiah chapter six, he sees the glory of the Lord and he falls down before him in silence. This notion that somehow we're gonna stand before God one day and question him. Can you imagine the, the audacity of fallen man thinking, you know, you hear people say things like, well, when I get to heaven, I've, I've got a bone to pick with God. We ought to be careful. We ought to be careful in how we envision that we might approach the glory of the living God. He is the one who is, who was, who always will be. John rightfully falls at his feet as a dead man would. And but for the mercy and kindness of this same God, it's exactly what he would be. He would but die in the presence of such an awesome God. However, he goes on to tell us, he says, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. And I don't think this is, I don't think this is Jesus just comforting him. This isn't, this isn't Jesus just saying, it's okay, buddy, remember me? He's commanding him. And apart from that command, John would still be laying before this glorious revelation of the Son of God. When Jesus says, don't be afraid, fear leaves John. Jesus goes on to say, he says, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the mercy of God that he counts Jesus' righteousness imputed is the theological word, gifted to. He, he counts Jesus' righteousness accredited to John's own life. Therefore, he may stand in the presence of such a glorious God. Because of the mercy in Jesus. Remember, John's, John's not gonna make the next move. Jesus has to act. And in the same way, you and I can only stand before the presence of this great and glorious God because he has acted on our behalf. He took the initiative. Jesus came to earth. He became sin for our sake he took upon himself the punishment 
the, the just wrath of God that you and I deserve, he took that upon himself on the cross in order to satisfy God's justice. And instead of standing before God in our own sinfulness, we get to stand before God in the gifted righteousness of Jesus himself. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus reaches forward, he touches John. He says, don't be afraid. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, verse 19 says, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. Some suggest this is, could be used as an outline for the book of Revelation. You have these three stages, you have what, what John has seen, you have the revelation then to John of what is, and then you have a revelation of what will take place. There are strengths and weaknesses to that. I won't be following that as a general outline for the book, but I wanted you to be aware of that because you may see that in your own studies. It goes on to say in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the, gold, the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels, it's always footnoted, usually footnoted, that angels could be translated as messengers and I think that's helpful in that if, it, it, I don't know what you think of when you think of angels, uh, but these are messengers of God. These are, these, these are, these are beings, these are heavenly creatures who do God's bidding, who serve as his messengers. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Take note of verse 20 because it's one of the only times, if not the only time, when we're given such a clear definition of a mysterious revelation. It's, it's ironic that Jesus starts this book this way. He, the first thing that John sees that, he, that needs interpretation, Jesus actually interprets for him. And that kind of gets your hopes up. You're like, oh, there's gonna be all of these images and Jesus is gonna tell us what they mean. And then you read the rest of the book and you're like, did we lose half the book? What's going on here? When's Jesus gonna tell us what these mean? And he doesn't do that, so... Enjoy it while it lasts. Here we are in verse 20. So this is John's response. He falls as though dead before Jesus. He receives this commission though. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus employs John to do his work. One of the beauties that I hope you don't miss in the book of Revelation is that we're part of, God is working through us we are his church. He's, he's building his kingdom. He is, he's doing his work through us, his people. And so it begins with John. The question you have to ask yourself, this is the last thing you see on the handout, the question you, that you must answer as we read Revelation and study Revelation together is, will you take heed of this revelation? Will you appropriately respond to what is revealed? The question that so many are gonna want answered is what does, this, what does this curious thing mean? 
What is meant by these verses or what is meant by those verses? And sometimes we'll know the answer and other times we won't yet have the answer. But the real question is, are you going to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ? Are you going to, like John, appropriately humble yourself before him, await his mercy, and then obey him? I think that's the most important thing that we can do with the book of Revelation. Whatever revelation we might find here of Jesus, we must quickly respond to it. We must immediately and sincerely respond to the revelation of who God is. What else would be appropriate? as God makes himself known to us, as he does this, as he acts in this incredibly merciful way to allow us to see what he is doing, we must quickly and sincerely respond to that revelation with faith, we talked about this last week, with faith, with trust, with a desire to obey a desire to be a part of his kingdom and to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whatever vision you had of Jesus before this, it it must be supplemented, perhaps even replaced, by the vision of Jesus found in scriptures. I fear that too many people in our culture, when you think of Jesus, you think of Jesus coming as a baby in humility. Or perhaps you, you think of, appropriately in some way, the humble Savior hanging on the cross. The Jesus we need to now see is the Jesus that is revealed in this final book of Holy Scripture. The Jesus who rules over all. Because he is awesome. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of obedience. He is worthy of faithfulness through affliction for the sake of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we consider how we might respond to this revelation, God, would you prepare our hearts for obedience? Increase our faith. Increase Increase our belief in what the sinless son of God did on our behalf to save our souls. God, erase any notion that we can bargain before you, that, that we, we can stand before you and argue and seek to change your mind about anything because at the revealing of who you are, we are all like dead men. And may we humble ourselves now to receive your mercy and your kindness. May we commit ourselves to living lives that will count for eternity. May we appropriately respond to this revelation of Jesus, one like the Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, who came and died for our sins so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. 
Father, if there's anybody here today who has not trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, who has not put their faith in what Jesus did on the cross, what we call the gospel, God, but yet today they want to have that relationship. They want to have Jesus Christ as their savior and they are ready to make him Lord. God, would you be pleased to come into their life, cause them to be born again. Grant them the gift of soul-saving faith today. And may today, today they begin a new journey, a new life of living for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.